Good morning, Christ Prez. We're going through the book of 2 Corinthians together, and this week and next week, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9, which are all about generosity. Paul is wanting to encourage the Corinthian Christians to be generous, and in particular, to give toward a collection that Paul is taking up for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. The Corinthians had agreed to participate in this offering, and Paul is encouraging them to see it through to the end. And so what we see in our passage is that Paul holds up um, other Christians, the Macedonian churches, as a model for faithful generosity. And they're a model for us too. What was it about them that Paul found so exemplary when it came to their generosity? Well, let's look at 37 things. I'm kidding. Let's look at three things. Paul shows us a first step. He shows us the fruit that follows from that first step. And then he shows us the foundation for the first step, okay? First step, the fruit that follows, and the foundation. So what was the first step that the Macedonians took? What is the first step that Paul would have the Corinthians take? What's the first step for us to take in our generosity journey? Well, look again at verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. There it is. That's the first step. Before the Macedonians started thinking about what they were going to do with their resources, before they made any decisions about how much of their money to give away, they made a decision about who they were in relation to God and others. They gave themselves to God and they gave themselves to other people. It's like the Macedonian Christians' first step was to respond to what was really true about them. They were not their own. They belong to God, and because they belong to God, their lives were radically oriented toward, uh, toward the good of others. They gave themselves to God and others. Now, let's dig into this a little bit. First, they gave themselves to God. They recognized that they were not their own, but that they belonged to God. See, if their very lives already belong to God, who does their stuff belong to? Whose money is it? It's God's. Everything they have belongs to God because they belong to God. You see, this is a radical reorientation of their perspective on their stuff, on their resources. When we take this first step and give ourselves to God, when we respond to the fact that our very lives are already his, then we stop acting like owners and we start acting like stewards. Everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. Psalm 24 reminds us, the earth is ours to do whatever we want with it. No, no, that's not what it says. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In Job chapter 41, God says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. See, everything belongs to God, including us, and therefore, including all our stuff. Now, this is not usually how we think about our stuff, is it? I mean, We like to think that we worked really hard for whatever we have, and so we might wonder, how can it all be God's? Well, it's not too hard to see how. You worked hard, fine, but where'd you get your body? Where'd you get your mind? Where'd you get whatever wherewithal you have to do the hard work you've done? See, the answer is that it was all a gift. It's just a gift. Your very life is a gift. We didn't create the world. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't create whatever abilities we have. 
all that we are and all that we have belongs to God. See, the Macedonian Christians, they recognized this. They acknowledged it and they responded to it. They gave themselves first to the Lord. See, that's, that's this first half of the first step. But Paul tells us that they also gave themselves by God's will to other people. See, once we realize and respond to the fact that we belong to God, and, and um, then what we want to do with ourselves and with our stuff just becomes a little less important, becomes de-elevated. What becomes much more important is what God wants us to do with ourselves and with our stuff. We've been taken out of the center. Everything belongs to God, and not just any God, but this God, this one, this God of humble, self-giving love. He's the God who invites us to reorient our entire lives around him and the good of other people. Everything we are and everything we have gets caught up in the economy of God's kingdom and enters into this flow of God's grace that moves in us and through us out to others. That's one of the things that's so striking about this passage. You know, Paul is very clearly talking about money. He's talking about this offering that is being taken up for the impoverished Jerusalem church. But instead of using the word money, he uses the word grace. Listen again. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. I mean, he could just as well have said, we want you to know, brothers, about all the money that the Macedonian Christians have given. But he doesn't say that. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. And then later he says, we urge Titus as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Again, he's talking about this financial offering, but he refers to it as an act of grace. He, he goes on, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace. What, what, he, what he's saying is, see that you also contribute to this offering. But see, he's using the language of grace. The Macedonians got it. They realized that they existed for love, for the love of God and for the love of people. And so they gave themselves to the Lord and to others. They, they took this first step of framing their entire lives, not as their own. They existed for God and for other people. And if that was true of their very lives, then of course it was true for whatever resources they had, their stuff and their money. And it was all taken up into this flow of God's grace. See, that's the first step recognize that you are not your own. Give yourself to the Lord and to others. Now, what happens when you do that? Let's look at the fruit that follows from this first step. Look again at verses two through four. Paul writes of the Macedonians, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So what follows the first step? What's the fruit? You see it here. It's radical, sacrificial generosity. See, the Macedonian Christians were poor. Paul says, extremely poor. They didn't have much to give. And related to that, they were afflicted. They were experiencing trouble and hardship. They were poor and they were picked on. But in the midst of their affliction, they had an abundance of joy 
and out of their poverty flowed a wealth of generosity. Can we feel the challenge of their example? You know, you, you remember that time when Jesus was watching people put money into the offering. Rich people are coming, giving very large sums of money. But then this poor widow comes along and she puts in two small coins, the smallest coins in circulation. And if we ask, well, what's the difference between what the rich people are giving and what the poor woman gives? You know, there are different ways of answering the question. I mean, one way in the world's eyes, the difference is that the rich people are actually making a real offering, right? They're giving substantial amounts of money away while the widow's contribution is completely insignificant. I mean, these two small coins make no difference. But Jesus thinks about it entirely differently. Do you remember? He says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Jesus basically says, her offering is far greater. The amount she gave was the smallest, but her sacrifice was the greatest. How could that be? See, the, the wealthy people are putting in hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. She drops in a couple of pennies. Here's the point. Jesus is saying that when most people give, they give out of their surplus. We give according to our means. And, and then we define what our means are according to what we think we need right now and then what we sock away for future needs and emergencies. And, and then beyond that, after we've determined what our means are, we give. In other words, we usually give from the margins. We might give regularly and we might give significant amounts of money, but we give from the extra. We give without it really cutting into our lives, without it really inconveniencing us. This is how most people think about giving. You know, they, we give, sure, but you know, they don't eat any less. They don't dress any worse. They don't entertain themselves any less. They don't travel any less. They don't live in a smaller home because of their giving. They don't settle for one car instead of two because of their giving. They give, but their giving never cuts into their daily lives. They give from their abundance out of their surplus. They give from the margins of their lives. They give what's left over after they've done everything else they want to do. They give as if their lives and as if their stuff belongs to them. Have you heard the story about the farmer whose cow had two calves? Well, this is great, he said. I thought my cow was only going to have one calf, but it had two. This is an unexpected blessing. When these two calves grow up, I'm going to sell one and give all the proceeds to the Lord. Well, his wife said, this is a wonderful idea. A couple of months later, the farmer comes in and he says, oh, it's been a horrible day. The Lord's calf died. That's how we tend to think about our stuff. <laughs> it's always the Lord's calf that dies. See, we give... As long as there's a surplus. But what about the widow? What about the Macedonians? Paul says that they gave beyond their means. They gave so that it cut into their lives. The widow, Jesus says that she gives it all. 
everything she had. She has two coins, she gives two coins. The Greek literally says, she out of her poverty put in all she had, even her whole life. She gave everything she had, even her whole life. And you see, that's the real point. You know, it is possible to give stuff away and to give money away without ever giving your life to the Lord. It's possible for Jesus to have our money without having our hearts. But family, he cannot have our hearts without having our money. Once you've taken the first step of giving your life to the Lord, then absolutely everything is on the table. Do you see that? It's all his. It's all his. But then giving becomes a joy. See, when we're taken up into the flow of God's grace and into this economy of God's kingdom, um, we, we embrace the reality that we are not our own, that our stuff is not our own. Once you've surrendered the whole, it's easy to give away the parts but surrendering the whole. See, that's, that's the hard part. They say the most difficult part of any journey is the first step, really giving yourself to the Lord. It's not that we don't understand the concept. It's, I mean, it just stands to reason that if there is a God, like the one the Bible says there is, that I belong to this God and I owe him everything. And if I'm his, well, of course all my stuff is his. That just makes sense. See, for most of us, it's not an intellectual issue that keeps us from taking the first step. It's more like a control issue. It's not a question of rational argument. It's a question of trust. The problem isn't that our minds disbelieve. The problem is that our hearts fear. Is this God really trustworthy? If we give ourselves over to him, will he really care for us? If I embrace Radical generosity, will I really have what I need? Well, we've seen the first step and we've seen the fruit that follows after taking the first step. But Paul also, he shows us uh, the foundation for the first step. He helps us to see that when we take this step, we're stepping out onto solid ground, a foundation we can trust. What he shows actually is that the first step isn't the first step. It's our first step, maybe, but not God's. You remember that wee little man, Zacchaeus? What do we know about him? What do you remember? You remember that he was a tax collector, and not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. Remember, tax collectors in Jesus' day were uh, Jewish people who were collaborating with the Romans in a system known as tax farming. Basically, the Romans would get a local member of the community to serve as a tax collector, and there would be an agreed-upon amount of money that the tax collector would have to pay over to the Romans at the end of each year from the community. But that was about the only rule. So the tax collectors would often take much more than what was required of them uh, from the Romans, and then they would just pad their own pockets with the excess. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which probably means he oversaw several other tax collectors in the community and probably got a big cut of whatever they collected. And because of all of that, Zacchaeus was rich. He'd made a fortune swindling his fellow Jews out of their hard-earned money so that he could pad his own pockets in collaboration with the Roman oppressors. You can imagine Zacchaeus was not loved by his community. This was not a guy who was plowing his resources out into God's kingdom for the good of others. Well, here comes Jesus, 
and Zacchaeus runs and hides. He wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't want to be seen by Jesus, maybe, because maybe he knows on some deep level that he's acted like an owner of his life rather than as a steward of his life. He's taken from others instead of giving to others. His life has been characterized more by greed and selfishness than by self-giving love. And so he climbs a tree. And you remember what happens. Jesus comes to the tree where Zacchaeus is hiding and Jesus stops and Jesus looks up and he looks right at this wee little man, Zacchaeus. And Jesus addresses Zacchaeus. And what Zacchaeus expects Jesus to say is something like this. Zacchaeus, you've been oppressing these people long enough. You've turned against your own. You've sided with the Romans. You've betrayed your country and your God. Come down from that tree. Quit your job. Repent. Follow me to Jerusalem. Receive ceremonial purification. Then come back to Jericho and devote yourself to a life of obedience to the law of God. And if you do all of that, maybe the next time I'm passing through, I'll stay with you at your home. You see, what he expects Jesus to tell him is to get his act together, to live a better life, to be more generous, to love God and to love other people more faithfully. I mean, he probably hid from Jesus precisely to avoid that kind of speech. Maybe that's part of why you hide. But that's not what Jesus says. In Luke's gospel, we read, we read this. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So this is a surprise. It turns out that while Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking him. Jesus walks over to the tree. He looks up at this wee little man and he calls him down. He says, I'm staying at your house today. Jesus decides to stay with the tax collector, with the Roman collaborator, with the rich oppressor. He decides to stay with the dirty rat. He decides to stay with the scumbag. He singles Zacchaeus out to be the recipient of grace. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. They, they said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so, family, we remember the gospel. I mean, how is it really that Zacchaeus is able to come down out of that tree? How can he come out? How can he come out of hiding? And how can we come out of our little trees where we like to hide because of our sin and because of our shame, because, because we feel like failures when it's come to generosity so often? How can we come down trusting that we'll be welcomed and received how can we take the first step of giving ourselves to the Lord? See the grace of God. See that Zacchaeus can come down his tree only because remember later, Jesus goes up another tree. Zacchaeus comes down and Jesus goes up. Jesus can welcome and receive Zacchaeus and he can welcome and receive you and me because he goes up his tree. He's dealing with our sin there in the ultimate way. Because of his tree, Jesus can extend hospitality and grace to everyone, even people like Zacchaeus, even you, even me. 
Remember, Zacchaeus radically transformed his behavior in response to the radical grace of God. Because Jesus reached out to him in costly love, Zacchaeus now reaches out to the rest of his community in costly love. He goes way beyond what the law requires in showing generosity and making amends to those he has wronged. He gives away half of everything he has to the poor. I mean, his response is just like this model response to the grace of God. But see and notice that Jesus' costly love wasn't at all dependent on Zacchaeus' response. First, Jesus made his home with Zacchaeus. He said, today salvation has come to your house. And he's talking about himself. He's saying, salvation has come to your house because I've come to your house. That's the grace. He goes home with Zacchaeus while Zacchaeus is still a swindling scumbag. And that's when salvation comes to Zacchaeus' house. And so, family, there's the foundation for this first step. That's how you can trust that this is a God who cares for you and will continue to care for you as you give to others. And so Paul tells us in verse 8, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The foundation for our giving ourselves to God is God giving himself to us. The foundation for our generosity is God's generosity. We can pour our lives out for others to the extent that we see and experience and receive God pouring his life out for us. Here we have the king of the universe, the one to whom everything belongs, becoming poor. For you, for me, believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.